Last week we began this series, Red Letters, talking about teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded his disciples. And we were talking about whether we even know all the things that Jesus commanded. And so in your, your small group study that you receive on a weekly basis, you received a, a list of the 335 commands of Jesus last week. If you didn't get that and you want that, you can write that down on your connection card. We gave away a book as well that talked about 50 of those commands that were highlighted. And that was a free book that we gave away. If you didn't get that, again, in your uh, connection card, you can write that down. But today we're continuing that series. Last week we were at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, talking about the first thing he said in the gospel of Matthew, in the first gospel, to repent. And today we're going to be at the end of his ministry. It's the Passion Week. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. Mark chapter 12. And Lord willing, we'll make it through verse 34 today. And we're going to talk about the most important command. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. What's happening here is that Jesus is being questioned by several different people. And have you ever thought to yourself, with all the questions that you have in life, what if you could ask Jesus a question? Think about all the questions that we have. Maybe you have questions about the way things work. Maybe you have questions about why things have happened in life. But let's just imagine for a moment you get to ask Jesus one question. What are you going to ask him? Like, just think for a second. Maybe you go out in the lobby just to make it tangible, and there's a photo booth out there. I don't know if you've seen that or not, where you can hop in, take pictures. It'll probably get more business today than it's ever gotten than ever. But anyway, it's there. And uh, you take one of those pictures. It gives you a little reel of four pictures. Imagine if you could go into that booth, ask God one question, and God would answer you back today. What would you ask him? You only get to ask one, though. You're probably going to ask him the most important question that you have. So you're probably not going to be messing around with how many angels dance around on the head of a needle or, you know, can he make a rock bigger than he can lift, okay? That's fun to talk about, whatever, but who cares? You're probably going to ask your most important question. So what is it? Am I going to heaven, somebody said. What about uh, something about your future here? Or maybe something that has happened here. You think about those things. Or, or have you thought about it? Have you even considered the idea of asking him what's most important to him. That's what someone asked in our passage today. What's the most important command? Of all the commands that have been given, and Jesus wrote the Bible, by the way. He's the guy that we talked about last week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. You saw in that video from the Great Commission passage. So he's got all the authority. He's got all the power. And the guy asked him the question, what's most important? What's happened right up until then is that Jesus has been being asked several questions. If you have your Bibles, you can kind of look back. If you have a Bible that happened to have, have titles in it, it might even tell you what the questions were. But uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. Friday, he'll be crucified. On Monday, he came into town. People were declaring him the Messiah. On Tuesday, uh, when he came in, people were flipping over tables, or Jesus was flipping over tables and driving out uh, people that were making a house of prayer, a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And then on Wednesday, which is what day it is here, Wednesday some people don't like that Jesus is so popular and they're calling him Messiah, and so they want to ruin his popularity before the people. And they also want Rome to know that he's a threat to Caesar, and so they ask questions like, should we pay taxes? And so that's the first question, and he answers that. And these are people that are under heavy oppression with taxation, and he says, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. And then a group of people, Sadducees, who don't even believe in the resurrection, ask Jesus, who are you going to be married to in the resurrection? If maybe you're married and then your spouse dies, and then there's another, and then another, and then another, and then who are you married to at the resurrection? And Jesus answers that question. And then in our passage, there's a guy who comes, and he's not trying to trap Jesus. He seems to be very genuine in his question. In verse 28, he asks the most important question to him. He says this, one of the teachers of the law, so an expert in the law, some of your translations say a scribe or a Pharisee, maybe a lawyer, some of your translations may even say, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, so he, know, he was impressed with the other answers that Jesus was giving to the questions he received. And so he asked this question, of all the commandments, which is the most important? 
And Jesus says this, verse 29, red letters. The most important one, answered Jesus. Now, this is a big deal. So this is the guy who wrote the Bible, saying all the commandments. Here's the most important one. Is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, bonus material. You didn't even ask for this. Here he's quoting from Leviticus. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so Jesus puts these two commandments together because they go together. They're inseparable. This guy's come to him. If you're trying to picture the scene, this guy's called a lawyer in some of your translations. He's not a lawyer like would try a case where there'd be a judge and you'd go to court and you'd talk about the evidence. He's an expert in law, some of your translations may say, or a scribe. Somebody writes down the law is meticulous about it. The law that they're talking about is the law of Moses. First five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, five books in the Bible, the first five. And they had debated, all these Pharisees and experts and lawyers, about what are the greatest commandments. And so they had come to the conclusion there were 613 different commandments in the first five books of the Bible. Number 613 came from the Hebrew translation of the Ten Commandments, has 613 letters. And so out of the 613 letters that are in the Hebrew there, they had come up with 613 commands, some positive, some negative, some you should do this, some you shouldn't do these things. And at times it felt like those things conflicted with each other. If I obey this command, then I'll violate this command. And, and as they started, and they added to that, not only that, but they added their own rules, their own laws of how to apply these things. It made it even more difficult. And so this guy is going, this is overwhelming. I can't, this, how do I even figure this stuff out? Jesus, can you make it? So just tell me what's the most important one. It's like I was having lunch with a, a friend the other day. He's a smart guy who's read a bunch of stuff and knows about nutrition. He's in great shape. And I get overwhelmed with all the nutrition stuff that's out there. I don't know if you've seen all the diets that are out there, if you've tried any of this stuff, but I get confused by it. I don't know if I'm supposed to drink the pink drink because I'm a dude, so I don't know if that's allowed. Uh, there's a paleo diet, but you don't eat anything that cavemen didn't eat. I don't even believe in cavemen, so I don't know if that's allowed. And they, they're not even allowed to eat oatmeal, which I don't even like. But maybe that's a good thing, but I heard it's good for you, and so that doesn't make sense to me. They can't do that. Nothing with a face. I don't know if you've ever heard that. See some of these vegetarian diets. Do vegetarians get to eat animal crackers? Just wonders. Just questions that are out there. They've got to be able to eat the frosted ones, because that'd be like wrong if they couldn't eat the... Any rate, they're, it's confusing, like with all the stuff that's out there. That's how this guy feels. He genuinely wants to do the right thing. It feels like when I do this right thing, then I violate this right thing. And so how do I do what? And Jesus, can you just make it simple? That's what I asked my friend. He knows all this nutrition stuff. I said, what's just the one thing I need to know about eating? And Jesus answers. He says, here's the thing. Now, this guy being an expert in the law, he'd be wearing verses on what they call phylacteries, little leather boxes that are on his wrist, strapped around his wrist, strapped around his forehead, perhaps even. And one of the verses that would be in these phylacteries is a verse that you would quote every day as a Jew. And that's what Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mark includes that. Matthew doesn't have that part of the verse. Very important, though. He's talking about who it is that we worship, not just a force, not just a power, not just your higher being. The God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the Jewish God, Yahweh. He is one. Ancient Near Eastern literature taught that if you talk about God as being one, what you're talking about is his supreme reign. But he doesn't just talk about the supreme one. He then talks about the love that we're to have for him and love him with everything that you are, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And so we're to have a supreme love for the supreme one. That's the most important thing to Jesus, that we as followers of Jesus would have a supreme love for the supreme one. Now, this is a big deal. You can just pause the very fact that Jesus said these words. Jesus asked what's the most important, and he goes, oh, it's all important. <laughs> That's not helpful. 
says, here's the most important thing. God is one. He is a supreme God. There's no one else like him. And you must love him with a supreme love with everything that you are. He gave everything for you. He sent me. Jesus, he's come to seek and save the lost. He's, come, he's giving his own child. Can, those of you who are parents, can you imagine giving up a child so you could be reconciled with another person? Here, you want you to have a relationship with this person that's an enemy of yours that's actually trying to do things that hurt you, and in order for you to have that relationship with them, your child has to die. And that's how God loved us. He's saying in, in return, he wants a supreme love. Now, many of us, we act like God should just be cool, like God's a beggar that should just be cool with whatever tokens we give him. I spent a little time, thought, I went to church today, hey, I thought about you once, and just, just kind of tipped the hat. Jesus is saying, no, here's the most important thing. This is what all of your soul, mind, strength, heart, everything. You're all your being, a supreme love. Think about who you love the most on this earth. Could be a parent, spouse, child, friend, someone in your life. Who do you have the, the most? If some of you love people so much, you'd give everything for them. You'd give up your own happiness. You'd give up your own life. You'd give up so that they could have life, so they could have happiness, so, they could, so you could benefit them in some way. And so you think about that person, and that's right, and that's good that you love them that much. But Jesus says that your love for them should look like hatred in comparison to your love for him. That's the kind of love that he's calling for. So you think about who you love the most. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe as a child, maybe as a parent. Think about what Jesus says. He says to his disciples one time, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me. Now we're supposed to love our parents. But anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so the idea that we have that God's cool with some t- devotion time that we spend with him in the morning. Or that we went to church and like now we're good and now we can do the rest of the stuff on our own. That God's okay with that and somehow he's satisfied with that. He's saying, no, 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 that's not even close. This is what's most important to me, that you love me with everything that you are. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with everything that you are. All of your physical abilities, all of your intellectual capacities, all of your emotions, and all of your will, your choices. I want all of it. It's an all-encompassing, supreme love. Why? Because he's worthy of that. Because he's the supreme one. So you think about that person you love. Whatever it is. Boy, girl, child, parent, whoever. And what was it like to love them? Did someone have to teach you, like, here's what you do when you love this person? I think about when I first fell in love with Shanna. I remember I walked into a Mexican restaurant. I saw her. I thought, she's got to have a beautiful Christian testimony. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like, who thinks that? I thought, she's highly attractive. She's hot. And so I want to get to know her better. You said, mm-hmm. You say my wife is hot, Spiro? Anyway. So, <clears throat> and so I'm attracted to her. So I ask her to go out on a date. We go out on a date. I think that she's interesting. So I start to get to know her more. No one ever had to tell me, you know what you should do, Scott? You should spend 30 minutes a day thinking about Shanna. And then you should spend 10 minutes a day writing things down to journal how much you like her. And then you should call her and talk to her for 20 minutes a day. That's how we treat our relationship with God. Is, not, is God not attractive to us? Does he not woo us into himself? And as we get to know him and taste and see that the Lord is good, do we not want more of him? Do, why do we have to be told then, here's how you should do these little, you said that segment your life this way. You know, some people preach this passage. Some people take this passage and say, here's what it means to love God with your heart. Here's what it means to love God with your mind. Here's what it means to love God with your strength. Here's what it means to love God with your soul. 
That's not Jesus' intention here. He's not outlining for, here's the four parts of a human, and so let's talk about that. And if you do that, that's, pastors have done that or whatever, that's, that may help you grasp the idea of loving with everything that we are. But his point is that it's all-encompassing. In fact, in the Hebrew text of Deuteronomy chapter 6, my, mind isn't even there. Jesus adds that. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, doesn't have the word heart there. So we, a lot of us, we talk about, well, heart, that's the most important part, right? Well, it's not even there in the Septuagint, in the Greek text of the Old Testament. Jesus' point is this. It's all of it. So he uses this word, ak, a little Greek word, ak, which is with. It means out of or source. Love God from the heart. Love God from your mind. Love God from your soul. Love God from all of your strength. And so we ask, well, what is that? You hear Christians getting these dumb arguments sometimes. Is love a choice or is love a feeling? Because how can you love without it being a feeling? Well, Jesus is going, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a choice of the will. And it can't be done without emotion. And if you don't have actions, because love is an action, right? Like you've heard that statement before. It is, yep, with your strength. That's an element of it. But Jesus is saying it's all of it. And pieces are not acceptable. That's not okay. It's, I want an all-encompassing love with all of your strength, your actions, with a volition, a will, a decision, with your emotions, all of it, with your mind. You don't check your mind out. Renew your mind. It's part of your living sacrifice. It's all mine. That's a supreme love. So how do you do that? Because this is Jesus saying, this is the most important thing. I'm going to get practical. Like, how does this happen? You've got to search through the scriptures as a whole. It says a lot about love. One of the things it says about love is that you don't just decide to do this. You wouldn't love unless God first loved you. So the first thing you need to know is that God loved you and he initiated and he's chasing after you. It says it like this in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. He's demonstrated, we didn't even know what love is apart from seeing what Jesus has done for us. And so this idea of sentimentalism that we see in the news or that just everybody agrees about everything that we see kind of in our day, all that stuff, we just start trying to define love by all that. And we've got to look to Jesus if we want to know what love is. Jesus came running after us while we were his enemy. We were fighting against him. We were sin, and we were sinning, and while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so he comes pursuing us like a runaway child, and then he fights for us to get us, and he pays a ransom to purchase us, and he brings us. It's all about his pursuit of us. And so we would never choose him, but he first loved us, and so he initiates the love. And then how does it happen in our hearts? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has to work in us. In our last series, we're in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He does a work in us. He draws us to himself. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and I quote that. It's a, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness. It goes through these other characteristics, but the first one is love. So God initiates this work. Then he does the work by his Spirit in us. And how do we grow in it? Well, he tells us this too. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, Luke chapter 7. Jesus having dinner at a religious guy's house. The religious guy's name is Simon. And it's customary in that time that when you have someone to your house, you'd greet them with a kiss, you'd wash their feet, you'd anoint their head with oil. The guy intentionally doesn't do any of those things. It's not just an oversight. It's not just a bad host. He's being rude to Jesus on purpose to disrespect him. People call him a rabbi, and they do not like him. He's also an expert in the law. He's one of the guys that wears the phylacteries on his wrists, his forehead. And uh, he thinks Jesus is a sham. And so he has Jesus come in. And they start having a conversation. It's also customary in that time that um, they didn't have reality TV. They didn't have TV. And so they just had reality gatherings. And so when people would have a, a dinner or something like that, that two well-known people would get together, uh, you just come and you could watch and you could listen to the conversation. So people are gathered around and they're listening to this. There's one woman who's got a sinful reputation and she's standing by Jesus' feet and she just starts sobbing. Her tears start falling on Jesus' feet. 
And then she gets down on her knees and she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And then the Simon, the religious guy, thinks to himself, if Jesus knew who this woman was, that he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus, knowing everything, including what Simon's thinking, could look at Simon and say, how do you know who she is, Simon? That would have turned into an interesting conversation. But instead, he says, there's two guys that owe money, Simon. One owes $7,500. The other guy owes $75,000. Neither one of them have enough money to pay. But the money lender forgives both of them. Who do you think, and it's interesting Jesus doesn't say, who do you think is more grateful? He says, who do you think will love the money lender more? And the religious guy says, well, I suppose the one who owes more money. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, when I got here, I'm still talking to Simon. You didn't put any oil on my head. And she anointed my feet with perfume. You didn't wash my feet. She has wiped them with her tears and her hair. And she hasn't stopped crying since she got here. Simon, she's been forgiven much. Those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven little love little. The question for Simon, which we assume the answer to, but isn't stated in the passage, is you've only been forgiven little, right? Have you even been forgiven at all? Do you need forgiveness, Simon? And the question for you and for me is, so have we been forgiven at all? Forgiven little or forgiven much? Because it's those who realize how much they've been forgiven that love much. And so if you want to grow in your forgiveness and you, or grow in your love, you grow in understanding your forgiveness and how sinful you actually are. It's like a story I read this week. A woman, her name was Ronnie Henry, if you want to look her up. And uh, she had what she said was a great life until she was about nine years old. Nine years old, her parents got divorced and her grandma died at the same, t- same year. And so all the stability in her life fell apart. And she went to live with dad. Dad became a terrible alcoholic, so she went to live with mom. After that, after a couple years living with dad... And while she was living with mom, mom got remarried, uh, stepdad got mom pregnant. While mom was pregnant, stepdad raped Ronnie. Ronnie told her mom. Mom thought she was lying. And so she went back to live with her dad. In the meantime, her dad had come to Jesus. And so he tried to be super dad. She had a bunch of interest in her, trying to talk to her about love, trying to get to know her better. And she rebelled against that. Got involved in witchcraft and started doing her own thing. By 22 years old... She was having her third child. Her third child uh, went into ICU. And she said, when I saw that child on the ventilator, I repented. I turned to God. I realized that witchcraft was not the way. And her life was a mess. And she said, I repented of my sin. I turned my life over to Christ. I begged God to save my son's life. And she said, but I didn't really know how to follow, how to be a disciple. Like we talk about this, what the series is all about. She didn't know how to walk in the truth. She didn't know how to be led by the Holy Spirit. She didn't know what the scriptures really said. And she caught her husband molesting one of their children, one of the other children. And she didn't trust the police. She didn't really trust anybody because of her story. And so she killed her husband. And she went to jail for murder. It was 35 years to life sentence. And while she was there, she was cut off from her kids, cut off from everybody. And all she had was a copy of the scriptures. And she started to study the scriptures where she found hopes, where she found comfort. And she's grown in her Christian faith. Now she's leading other women to Christ in the prison. And now she has a grasp of her forgiveness. Do you think she loves much? But what about you? Because maybe you didn't murder anybody. And a lot of us were more like the guy Simon in that passage than we are like the woman that was weeping at Jesus' feet. And so have you been forgiven much? 
Or are you stuck in a path where you have to love little? Are you in a situation where there, there's no way you could love much because you haven't done like the terrible stuff? Or was there an opportunity for Simon to be forgiven much? And he just didn't realize how sinful he actually... Well, there's another time where Jesus confronts some religious people and they're upset that Jesus is hanging out with known sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, people that aren't allowed to go to the temple actually. And Jesus says, well, I didn't come for righteous people. Now the Bible tells us clearly throughout, there's no one righteous, there's not one. He's trying to point out, you don't get your sinfulness. You think because you go to church, you think because you do this stuff, you think because on the outside everything looks good, that you're, you're good. You don't realize how far from God you are. Some of us, we've maybe trusted Christ when we were young, or you've been a Christian for some time now, and we think to ourselves, we, didn't turn our, we haven't turned our back on God. We've decided to not love Jesus, but we just kind of veer away, don't we? It's kind of drifting, like we're at sea, and we don't realize how far the current's taking us, and we just get further and further, and we think that at some point, it's all going to turn around, like it's just gonna, there's going to be a good sermon, or I'm going to pray a prayer, or I'm going to hear a song, or something's going to happen, and all of a sudden it's going to click, and then I'm going to be passionate with Jesus again, and we just keep getting further and further away. It's like a couple weeks ago, my wife and I took our girls to Williamsburg, historic Williamsburg. We're trying to teach them some American history. And uh, while we were there, one morning, I decided I was going to go out on a little run, a little jog before we went and had breakfast and did all stuff and went to see sites as a family. And I'm highly directionally challenged. Um, For those of you, I love the fact that our phones have GPS on them and all that kind of stuff. I would be toast without that. And uh, I went out on a run and set out started running and I kind of knew where we were at because we had gone to some of those spots got to the front of William and Mary College I don't know if you've ever been there before but it kind of comes to a point at one spot it's a beautiful campus and I thought well, I'm just going to jog around this circle around when I get back here then I'll be done with my run I plan to do about a three mile jog and so I take off and I leave and, you know colleges it's summertime so they're always having construction building something doing something so see that kind of jog around that thing well, I'll just turn here oh that doesn't look right and I'll just turn, and I just kept making these turns, and I never kept, I thought, it's got to be just up around the corner, was what I just kept thinking to myself. And my plan was just three miles. And about three and a half miles in, I decided this wasn't working. So I pulled my GPS out, and I hit on there, history for the hotel. I'm still running, though. And then uh, I click it, and I thought it said one more mile. Now, I took my wife on a ride after all this happened, and she said, why don't you just turn around and come back? Because I kept thinking, if I just, it's just got to be up here just a little bit more. And so I pull out the GPS, and it says 1.1 miles, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Go up here and turn left. So I get up to this road, and I've never been here before, so I didn't know the left was going to be onto a freeway, and a highway. And so I look at it, and I can't see the end, but it's kind of downhill for a while, which is always nice when you're running to go downhill. And then there's a bridge, and I thought, well, it says one mile, so I'll just go. And there's a shoulder. And so I'm running down the shoulder. There's four lane, you know, 70 miles an hour cars are zipping by, which is a nice little breeze sometimes. Was in, I don't know, but I'm going for a while. I get to the end of this bridge and then I look and I know that I've gone over a mile and I can't even see the next turn. Like I'm just in the middle of this road now. And so I stop and I pull the GPS back out and I must have read it too quick because I was running and it said 3.3 more miles. Now I'm already five miles into this deal that was only supposed to be three miles. I'm upset at everyone in the world except for myself and it's no one's fault but mine. Okay. So I call Shanna. We're in this little hotel room, three kids in this hotel room, and she's got her phone. Her phone is very easy to hear. We'll just say that, and it's something we talk about as a couple. And so I called her. I have no idea how she doesn't hear the phone. She's got this annoying thing on text message where it's a minion that starts laughing, tells her, you got a text message when I get text. So I send her a text message. Then I give her this little walkie-talkie thing. She doesn't answer the walkie-talkie thing. So then I call back a couple more times. She's still not answering her phone. She went to breakfast, left her phone back in the room. So I'm very mad at her at that point. 
as if it's her fault that I'm standing on the freeway, cars are zipping by. So I get some, I just leave her. I'm like, forget it, I'm coming back. And so I just start running, and I'm cursing everybody that I know probably, and probably some of you didn't even know that that was happening. I'm just, I'm just mad at that moment, and it's my fault. I get back to the hotel. Well, I had left her a voicemail to come get me. I didn't even, I'm so directionally challenged, I told her to turn the wrong direction out of the hotel parking lot to come pick me up. So there was no shot anyways, like even if she came, but... It's, it's so easy to do that. You just, well, just around the, it's just around the corner. I'm going to just make the next turn, and then it's going to be there. And as soon as it, and we do that in our journey with Jesus, that we think, oh, well, it's just going to, I'm not that far. I'm not that far away from him. And it's just, I had a rough week, and then but next week's going to be better, and then, and then what's going to happen? How are you going to get back? But we keep, in the meantime, still going to small group. We still show up at church, still read our Bibles, do our devotions. We still serve in bridge kids. We're still doing all the stuff. Jesus writes to a church in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, that Paul had written to before. He had written to them there, the church at Ephesus. Well, who Paul wrote to in the church of Ephesus were first-generation Christians. Many of them probably had testimonies similar to Ronnie Henry and then trusted Christ. Or the woman at Jesus' feet and then trusted Christ. In Revelation chapter 2, it's 40 years later, he's writing to their kids. Many of them grew up in Christian homes. Their parents had the dramatic testimonies. And Jesus says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, so you stay with me. You haven't just said, hey, I'm done with loving Jesus. I'm turning my back on him. Most of us don't do that. He says, I know that you cannot, be, you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. you found them false. You know the truth. You've persevered. You've endured hardships. You're willing to go on mission trips. You'd be willing to be martyred for me. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You don't love me. It's kind of important based on what Jesus has taught before. These are in red letters, by the way, in Revelation chapter 2. Look what he says. Remember the height from which you've fallen. And like my wife said, why don't you turn around and go back? Repent. Remember, that's what repentance is. not just turning from your sin. It's turning to God. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, there will be consequences. I will come to you and I will remove your influence. Go back. What's the worst sin that you think you can commit? Is it Ronnie, what she did, killed her husband? Maybe that's justifiable because she was defending someone who was helpless. Maybe it's a pedophile. Maybe it's the husband. Maybe it's adultery. But doesn't it make sense that the worst sin will be to violate the greatest commandment? If Jesus says, this is the most important commandment, that you love me with not token love, with a supreme love, that to not love Jesus with all that we are, with all that we have, with every thought, with all of our resources, with all of our mind, with all of our emotions, isn't that the greatest sin? R.C. Sproul calls this the great transgression to violate this command. Jesus, the one with all authority, all power, says the most important thing is this. And then we go, well, yeah, I mean, but it's not that serious about that one. As long as I still go to church and I still do. And when people aren't doing that, he says, no, repent. You come back. Go back to the beginning. Go back to when you realized that I was chasing after you, that I rescued you. Do you realize how forgiven you've been? That's the worst sin. The worst sin is to violate the most important commandment. To fail to love God with all that we are. And we all do it. So have you been forgiven much or forgiven little? And then Jesus gives this next command, which is awesome because the guy didn't say, what, is the top, what are the top ten commands? 
What are the top five? What do you think are the two most important? He said, what's the most important one? And then Jesus gives the bonus material. The second is this. Oh, I didn't need ah, I'm already confused with these 613. Just, well, just one. Love your neighbor as yourself. The reason why he gives this one is because they're inseparable. To love your neighbor does not mean to love God. Let's be clear about that. You can love another person and not love God. But you can't love God and not love people. If you love God, you will love who, what he loves, which is people. John says it in 1 John chapter 4 like this, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. That's pretty clear. <laughs> it's the Bible. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, can't love God whom he's not seen. How can you love someone you've never seen more than you love people you have seen? Because that's what we're commanded to do. But if you say that you do that, then you can't not love the people you do see. And this is a radical command. So he takes it from Leviticus, and he really broadens the interpretation. Their interpretation of it was that it was to love people that are just like you. And Jesus broadens who it is. But what's really powerful to me, as I thought about that, and I've, thought, I've heard this lots of times, but this week what blew me away was this. Love your neighbor, and it's this little word, as yourself. So I always think, well, we're, we're commanded to love other people. We have to love other people. Okay. And then you hear people say things like, well, I love them. I just don't like them. Well, that's not true, just so you know. Because usually we say we don't like them. It means I don't want to be around them. Uh, I'd rather, that, you know, if I didn't have to, they're annoying, whatever that kind of stuff is. That is not obeying this command, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean you just love them like you'd want good outcomes for them. You want stuff that, it's that you would go to the same effort to ensure that those things happen. So I'm talking to a friend of mine the other day at that lunch day. We were just having dinner together, dinner table, and... Uh, we're close, and I know about his marriage. We've talked about his marriage before and talked about my marriage and when we struggled and things are going well. And I said, hey, listen, you know I care about your marriage. There's no way I care about your marriage as I care about my own. And, and, and I started to think, now, I'm going to make sure that I get lunch today, just so you know. And I care about you. There is no one in this room that I care as much that you're going to get food as I care about how much I'm going to get food. And I would venture to guess most of you feel the same way. Maybe I feel that way about my kids. And, and Jesus, what, what I'm going to show you in a minute is that when he talks about neighbor, he means everyone. And I start asking myself, is there anyone? Is there anyone that I love as much as I love myself? Now, I'm not even talking about like we can get, we're in a psychology age, uh, self-love and self-esteem and self-assurance and self-identity, all that kind of stuff. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. We all love ourselves because we all feed ourselves. We're uncomfortable. We make sure that we're comforted. We, and even people that have, say they have low self-esteem, self-deprecating, all that kind of stuff, that's really self-love. And so he, that we love ourselves. That's not the issue. The issue is, is there actually anyone else in our lives that we love as much as we love ourselves? Because then Jesus will go on and define neighbor as your enemy. He tells a story in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of you, if you hear the word Samaritan, you probably think of a good person. Uh, that is not what Jews would hear. What happens in Luke chapter 10 is Jesus doesn't actually give the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart. A teacher of the law, a Pharisee, a guy with the phylacteries, the little verses on his wrist and on his head, comes up to Jesus and says, um, how do I get an eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think the law says? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Go do that. No one can do it. Then Luke tells us the guy wants to justify himself. We're good at that. And so he wants to narrow down who neighbor is so that he can say, well, I'm good. I've got it. I did that. I love my wife that way. I love my kids that way. I did the thing. Loved fellow Jews in such a way. And he says, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives him a story. 
And the story starts off uh, in a way that they would identify with. There was a road that was a real road. It was the Bloody Way was the name of the road. And it would be like saying that somebody was um, decided they were going to go on a hike and down an alley in New York City. They were in Brooklyn, and they were going through the projects and decided they were going to skim through this little dark alley and got jumped, beaten. Their clothes were stripped off their body. Clothes were valuable at that time. They were left naked and half dead. Okay, It's a dark story Jesus is telling. He says, then a priest comes along. Sounds like hope. Priest would be a guy who has the phylacteries, little verses on his wrist, verse on his forehead. So he's got like a fish on his car, would be modern day equivalent. And so he's probably wearing the verse, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so you hear about this priest coming, the teacher of the law, go, one of my guys, here he comes. And then he, Jesus says, the guy goes on the other side of the road to try and avoid this and lots of reasons why we could justify that, but he doesn't go anywhere near the guy. Tries to ignore the fact that there's even a problem. In case you think that guy's an anomaly, Jesus then tells him the next guy's a Levite. He'd be like an assistant to the priest, probably wearing verses as well. And so he comes and he does the exact same thing, ignores the problem. The next guy that comes is from ISIS. He's been seen on TV cutting people's heads off as far as stereotype is concerned. That's what they would have heard when he said a Samaritan. And so this Samaritan comes down the road, sees this guy, goes over to him, and the teacher of the law would be thinking, because he's only half dead, he's going to finish him off. He says the Samaritan takes his own clothes and bandages the man's wounds. So he's tearing off the sleeve from his own clothes. These are valuable things in this time period. And then he puts them on his donkey, which means now that guy has to walk, takes him to an inn, writes a blank check, says whatever this guy needs, you take care of it. That's loving as you'd want yourself to be taken care of as. And then Jesus doesn't say at the end, now the Samaritan is your neighbor and the guy on the side of the road is your neighbor. He says, who was a neighbor? The Pharisees, so racist that he can't even say the Samaritan. He says, I suppose it was the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, you go do the same thing. And he knows the guy can't because his heart hasn't been transformed. So he's trying to show the guy, you've got to come to me for forgiveness. You've got to come to me to transform you. I loved you. That's the only way you can ever love me. It's the spirit of God that works into you. And when you realize the forgiveness, and so there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Everybody that comes across your path is your neighbor. And you're to love all of those people as you love yourself. It's impossible stuff. But it's the most important stuff. And we spend a lot of time doing a lot of other stuff, don't we? It says you love me with the supreme love. I am the supreme one. The way that the supreme love is seen is that you love other people. And it's interesting in our Mark passage how the guy responds. Just the last couple verses as we wrap up. The guy says to Jesus in verse 32, Mark chapter 12, Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him, interesting, he doesn't talk about God now, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your understanding. And to love your neighbor as yourself. It's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So good job, Jesus, you answered well. As if Jesus needed this guy's affirmation. Hey, I walk on water. Did you see that too? It's interesting that he does say burnt offerings and sacrifices, considering they're standing in the temple courtyard and Jesus has flipped over the tables and told them they've screwed up worship. But this is the only place in the scripture where we have a scribe, a Pharisee, basically saying positive words about Jesus. And then verse 34 is the only place in scripture where we have Jesus commending a scribe. It says, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, affirming that Jesus was correct, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I think that's awesome. I'm not asking any questions. I saw what happened to the last couple of guys. But interesting statement by Jesus. 
you're not far from the kingdom of God. So he's giving positive words to this guy. Like, and what he's saying by not far is you're not content with just the party line. You're willing to actually think. You're open-minded, to use our language. And so you're not just convinced. What if the Pharisees say it, it must be true. If this is what everybody else thinks, then I have to go down this path. He's genuinely seeking God. And so I'm open to the truth. Not far, though, does mean not in. So you can be not far from the kingdom and not in the kingdom. Not far means this. You know the information, but it's not reality in your life yet. We live in a city full of not far people. People that go to Bible study, people that go to church. If I were to ask before this sermon, I bet probably 90% of you could answer, what is the most important commandment in the Bible? Love God. So do you? That's not far. If the answer is no, that's not. You're not far. But not far is not in. So let me ask you the most important question that anyone can ask you. Are you in? Are you in the kingdom? Do you realize your need for forgiveness? Have you called upon Jesus to be your savior? And if not, you need to take that step of faith. You might be one step away, and it's just taking that step of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to do that today. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. And some of us, you've gotten far. You're like the church in Ephesus. Maybe you love Jesus at one time. Maybe you know the truth. Maybe you serve in bridge kids. Maybe you're a good guy and you've got deeds. You'd persevere. You'd take on persecution, but you've drifted. You're like me. I'm on my run. You just get to, maybe around the next corner. Maybe around the next corner. Turn around and go back. Repent. Remember what it was like at the beginning. When you first met Jesus, when you realized your need for a Savior, turn around and go back. Let's pray. Father, We need you. We really need you. We can't do this on our own, and I don't just mean get out of bed in the morning. Like, we got no shot at anything. We need you. I pray for those who need you as Savior in this moment. I pray that you'd save sinners. I pray that you'd save anyone that's not in your kingdom. There's someone that's not far. I pray that you'd draw them here today. I pray they would hear these words online. Next service would now, in this moment. And that you draw them to you. You'd have them take that step of faith. And maybe God's calling on your heart right now. just telling you it's time to take that next step. Trust me. Turn to me. Come to me. If he's saying that, I don't care if you've been going to this church for 30 minutes. You just walked in here. Or you've been coming to this church since the day we opened the door. If you don't know Jesus, trust Jesus as your Savior right now. That's the most important thing that you can do. Some of you need to turn around. You need to go back to him. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. You think you're just in a dry season. You're drifting. You don't realize how far you're drifting. Turn and go back. Surrender everything to him, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And Father, we thank you that you take us back. We thank you that you're continually right there for us, that your mercies are new every day, that you're so gracious, that you're so kind, that you're so loving, that you keep running after us, you keep pursuing us, and you throw a party that we'd come back to you. And who cares what anyone else has thought? Whether they thought that we'd far away, whether they thought that we're close, God, I pray that we would just turn.